Real early in the morning, he went to go talk to the king, but the king had been had a sleepless night. He had been reading in his own chronicles and had discovered that Mordecai had did him a great service one time by pointing out a plot for some people that were wanting to kill him. And Mordecai had never been rewarded. And so when David walks in the door to talk to the king, the king says, how should the king treat someone that he wants to honor? Well, obviously, Haman thought the bad thing about him. And so he goes into this whole long spill of all these things that the king should do. Royal robes, royal horse, all these things. Walk him around, declare him to be the one that the king honors. And then the king said, great, go do that for Mordecai. Haman was there to get Mordecai executed, so that didn't work out so well. He did what he was supposed to do, and then he went back home and he had a pity party with his wife and his friends. And his wife and his friends told him that he was going to fall. If he was up against this Mordecai, there was something going on, he was just going to fall. But probably Mordecai, I mean, probably Haman didn't think it was going to happen quite so quickly, but we're about to see in this chapter that it happens a lot sooner than he would have expected. So at the end of his pity party, it says that some of the king's servants came to gather payment for him to go with the king to meet with Esther for the second banquet. And this is when things are going to change. Now, most of us from a very early age understand what is fair or just. Kids, right away, they can tell you, hey, that's not fair. Uh, we're good at that. We identify with that. When someone breaks the rules of the game, even if we literally just made the game up and made the rules ourselves, we know that's not fair and we will decry that injustice. Every child knows a cheater when it sees one. Um, and that sense of justice has been built into us by the Lord himself. So this morning, we're going to see the beginning of the Lord's justice for Haman as we learn about what happened at Esther's second banquet. Now, the sermon in the sentence is, is this. God is just, and he will ensure that sin is either forgiven or punished. Can't be ignored. Sin's either forgiven or punished. And so we're going to be looking at the, the story of, of Haman and, and Xerxes and Esther at this banquet. This is Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, So the king... And Haman went to a uh, feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, after the feast, the king again said to Esther, <coughs> What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath uh, from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? 
As the word left his mouth, or as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on uh, the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, that's seventy-five feet. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Okay, so we're, we're looking at this, we're going to break into three kind of short little ideas. And first one just is the second banquet that was given. Haman knew uh, that things were going bad for him, but it's unlikely he had any idea how quickly things were going to unravel. It seemed like every time he took a step forward trying to get rid of the Jews, specifically Mordecai, something made him take a step back. And so this parading Mordecai around on the horse and declaring that he was the one that the king honored, that was a pretty major step back for him. And his wife and family said, you're eventually going to fail. But Haman, there's just no way he knew that he was fixing to go into that banquet, face this kind of problem, and ultimately um, be killed. So he had just been forced to honor the man that he wanted to execute. Um, and even though his wives and friends had told him he would fall, he probably didn't know how suddenly he would fall. So it's during this banquet, or after probably the food, when they were just sitting around drinking wine, um, the king repeats his offer to give Esther anything that she wants, up to half of the kingdom, because she has still not made her request known. Now, again, the king um, probably thought that, that she was going to ask for something material, that she was going to ask for something maybe even slightly selfish, but he was willing to give it. He loved her. He was, he was just enchanted by her, so he wanted to give her whatever she wanted. And the reality is, Haman had sat through this one time before. In the first banquet, King had asked this, or he kind of demurely said, hey, just come back tomorrow, have, have another banquet, and I'll tell you. And so Haman may have taken this time just to kind of tune out, just to tune out what was going on and think about maybe his own problems, what he was going to do next, how he was going to get the upper hand on Mordecai. Who knows what he was thinking when this happened. And, and let me just say this. Uh, as we sit in judgment upon Haman, and, and it's easy to do because he was an evil man, we should remember that he is a man that used his own power and influence to get something that he desperately wanted. He, that's all he did. And how many times have we used power, influence, or whatever resources we had to get something or to do something that was outside of God's will? We have been in a situation, maybe, hopefully none of us have attempted genocide. But we have probably attempted something that, that God had said, no, no, and we had tried to make it happen anyway. Or even that God had said, wait, or God had forbidden in Scripture. We probably tried something, and, and, and we had to use our own power, our own resources, our own influence to get it. Haman was that man. That's what he had done. So before we judge him too harshly, we need to realize that we have been not in his shoes, but in shoes like his. And so we need to think about that. So throughout this story, we have seen the Jews treated in an unfair way, like we talked about at the beginning. It, you know, if the Jews were, were just, just going to be able to say what they wanted to say, they would say, hey, this is unfair. What is happening to us, the way we're being treated, this is all unfair. And so it's very likely that's the way they felt. And Haman had been the one driving this treatment of them. He's the one that had kind of pushed to, to have them bow. He's the one that had written the decree and sent it out that they would be killed in less than a year. Uh, and as we read this passage, we 
probably do want him to pay for uh, his sins. When the guilty are punished, that is justice. We need to remember that. When the guilty are punished, that is justice. The truth becomes less comfortable uh, about justice when we realize that it can also be applied to us. So think about that for just a moment. So Haman was guilty of attempting to kill all the Jews. And so we want him, we, he's the bad guy in the story. We want him to lose. In our own minds, a lot of times we probably are the hero in our own story that, that plays out in our heads. But if we have sinned, we are a bad guy. Just like Haman. Not, not that we've done exactly what he's done, but we are also bad guys. So when we think about justice, and we, and we long for justice, and we long for fairness, we need to keep in mind that that justice that we want for Haman, or that justice we want for that person that's tailgating us, or, or cut us off, or that justice that we want for anybody else, we have to realize that justice is, 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 should be applied to all. And God's justice will eventually be applied to all. And so when we long for that, we have to remember that, that, that we could be on the wrong side of that as well. Fortunately for Christians, there is another path to justice that we'll see as we go through this passage. And so that's what I want to bring out as we go through this. So the next part is we're going to see this request that's finally made. For a couple of chapters now, Esther's been telling the king, hey, I've got a question for you. And the king's been saying, hey, the answer is yes, whatever you want. But Esther has waited. And so now is the moment that she finally reveals what her request is. Now, finally after three days, Queen Esther tells the king what she would ask of him. And it does seem that he's probably still expecting for her to ask for something material. Um, so we can only imagine how surprised the king is when Esther begins asking for the king to save her life. I can imagine his eyes flying open. You know, he was just waiting. He, he was able to give her anything that she wanted. But she didn't want something that he could give. She wanted her life. And, and he had no concept that her life was in danger. We don't know what Haman knew, but we, it's pretty clear that Xerxes did not know that she was a Jew. And so you can just imagine the surprise that he had. So Esther goes on to say that not only was her life in danger, but the life of all of her people. It's unclear exactly when this clicks for Xerxes. It seems to be after or somewhere around the time that, that she points out Haman. But already the king is ready to fight. Whoever, whoever has threatened his queen, he's ready to fight right away. So um, the way that she words this petition before the king should be familiar, because she is almost directly quoting the edict that was sent out by Haman to, to, to condemn all the Jews. The, these words that she used, for example, um, she said, she said that um, it is, um, well, I lost it now. Um, she says, for we have been sold, I and my people, in verse 4, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. These are words that Haman had used in that decree when it went out saying that all the Jews would be killed on the day before what we know to be the Passover. So that was a pretty intense decree, and she is using that very same language to say, this is what's happened to us. Well, it seems like the king didn't quite figure it out at that time. It's unlikely he read the decree. It was in his name, but it's unlikely that he actually read it. Um, but she's using that very same language. Now, we have seen enough of Xerxes to know that he is given to fits of rage. So it's no surprise when he aggressively questions Esther concerning the man that would do such a thing. It's almost like he says, who, what, when, where, how? How did this happen? He just, he just goes on and on asking these questions about 
who is this? Like, you tell me who this is, and we will fix this right now. He just wants to know who is the one that has actually threatened the life of this queen. Um, because he says, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? He is ready in this moment to take action. Whether he is a, a weak personality, he is not a weak man. And so he is able to do things that, that he had more power than most people at that particular time. So he was able to handle the situation once Esther revealed it. So after all the delays of the last three days, Esther wastes no time pointing out that it is Haman who planned to kill Esther and her people. So she says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. So a foe and enemy, these are opponents. These are people that, that are against you. Um, and not necessarily in a bad way, they're just against you. And so you, if you were on a sports team, the other sports team, they would be your foe in that moment. If you were on one side of a battle line and another side of the battle line, those would be your enemies. But a wicked person is the enemy of everybody. And so when she points him out as wicked, the NIV says vile, when she points him out as that sort of person, he is an enemy to all people. So that's how she presents him. And, and here's, here's Haman. Who knows? I mean, I think he tuned in as soon as Esther started saying kill all the people. Uh, he probably had tuned back in by this point. The king flies into a rage. Haman's probably sitting there just as quiet as he can be. And when she points the finger, everything changes in his life. In an instant, everything changes. Now, we know that the king was, was very, very upset about this. Um, there's no evidence that Haman knew that, that, that Esther was a, was a Jew. So this, this decree was more about Mordecai than it was about anybody else. But Esther doesn't say that part. She just says that he's the one that wants to kill me. And so Haman, he was clearly prideful and he was evil. But when it seems like he's about to face justice, he actually is also a coward. So the king is so angry because Haman was a trusted advisor. Remember, second, the kingdom had been elevated above everyone else. The king was so angry that he, he, had to, he had to walk around for a minute. He had to go out to the garden at, at the palace there and just kind of walk around for a minute before he actually dealt with this situation. Now, you do have to understand a little bit about Persian custom, especially when it comes to royalty like the queen. No man that wasn't a eunuch or the king himself could be alone with the, the queen. That just wasn't the case. If, if there was any threat, any danger, no one could be around. So when the king walks out, that kind of makes things a little bit different all of a sudden. Well, what Haman does when the king walks out, he begins to beg for his life to Esther. Now, they ate a lot of the same way that the Jews would have eaten. So if they had the table, they would have had these short little couches, and they would have reclined. And so she would have been kind of reclining. Her feet would have been out from her. And so he would have bowed or went down on his knees to her feet and began to beg and plead for his life. Now, that's a really... Um, uh, I think it's a, a really important thing. So as she is, is reclining at the table, he's begging for his life. We shouldn't miss the irony here that all this started because Mordecai would not bow. And then here we have Haman down on his knees begging Esther for safety, begging Esther for mercy. Now, Haman was a very good judge, it seems like, of who is in control of the situation here. And so he doesn't go to the king because the king is in a rage. He goes to Esther. He thinks maybe Esther could say a kind word and maybe spare his life. Well, it doesn't seem like Esther was inclined at all. I mean, she did all these theatrics just to make sure that he looked like, you know, the most horrible person on the earth when, when she pointed the finger at him. And so certainly she didn't want to do that. But I believe even if she could have, even if she could have said something to the king and said, hey, he 
he did this thing, but, but well, he found it out now. He didn't succeed. You know, let's just go ahead. I think still the king was ready to kill him. I think the king was ready for him to be executed. And, and the way the guards respond seems to, seems to lend to that. So this tension that has been building for these seven chapters is finally beginning to settle down as we see that it's impossible for Haman to escape the justice that is coming for him. Again, this is a book that doesn't even mention the name of the Lord, but yet you can see that things are going the way that God has planned them, the way that God has prepared them. Haman was going to do the evil that he was going to do. That was a known quantity. And so God orchestrated so many events to get Esther in this position at this banquet, at this hour, to point him out to the king. And then the king, because the king had fallen, head over heels in love for Esther. He was ready to do whatever Esther wanted. And so when he found out that there was a man threatening his own wife, he was ready to end this thing. And so this was all God's hand at work in this process. Even though it seems like it's just people talking and people doing things, we can definitely see that God is doing justice. So let's look at justice finally served. So here's the scene. When the king comes back from the garden, he's, he's, he's kind of cleared his head maybe a little bit. Maybe he wasn't quite so angry. He comes back from the garden, and here is Haman falling all over his wife, begging for mercy, falling on her couch. That's not going to fly in Xerxes' world. That's just not going to happen. So he says, you would assault my queen in my house while I'm here? That was just to him, that was a complete outrage. He was so upset at this moment that there was nothing. And he doesn't tell the guards to apprehend him, but the guards actually take some kind of cloth or something, cover his head. A condemned man with his head covered. Haman is dead from the moment the king walks back in the room for sure if he wasn't already dead. So he, he brings that, that cover over him, the guards do, and they, they arrest him. They take him into custody. Now, this, um, this guard or this eunuch that was mentioned, uh, Harbona, in verse 9, um, he was also mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 10. And so we've known him for a while. We've known that, that he was around. And so he tells, and, and Haman has no friends in this room, by the way, he tells the king not only this, but he has actually built this huge gallows prepared to hang Mordecai, the man that spoke up to protect you, the man that you just honored, Haman wants to kill him. And so at this point, the king is just like, you, you, you hang him on those gallows. You kill him on those gallows. There was no trial. There was no jury. There were no proceedings. But this was justice. This was the king's justice. But more importantly, it was God's justice. That is definitely something we can see here. So the royal guards cover his face. Um, they tell the king about the 75-foot high gallows uh, that he made the night before. Um, you know, and sometimes, I'm sure Xerxes was eloquent. But in this moment, he has no eloquence left. He just wants the man to die. And it was only after this order was given and followed that the king's fury began to subside a little bit. Let's reflect for just a moment. Haman's plan rivaled that of anything that Hitler or Stalin ever wanted to do. The difference is Hitler and Stalin actually succeeded in, in murdering millions and millions of God's people. Whereas Haman didn't succeed. We don't even know that yet in the story, but, but spoiler, he doesn't succeed. Um, so for a Christian perspective, and Haman was hanged, by the way, just, just in case you don't know, he's dead at the end of the chapter. Are we to be happy that Haman faced this kind of justice? 
Um, are, are we to be pleased that he was punished on this earth for his sins? You know, we have countless songs in, in, in our hymnals about the love and the mercy and the grace of God. But there are very few hymns saying that celebrate God's justice. The fact that he does not ignore sin. There are very few of those. And you know, even, even though we have longed for fairness, even though we have longed for justice from, from our childhood, um, we do tend to shy away when God's justice approaches whether people realize it or not, there is still a fear of the Lord. Now, people don't admit it, people don't recognize it, they don't live like it, but when justice comes, people do still fear the Lord. You know, we have probably been told from our childhood, many of you, especially if you said, hey, that's not fair to a teacher or to your mom or your dad, what would your mom or dad say? Life's not fair, right? That's pretty much what they would tell you. And so we, we've kind of heard that back and forth. Um, and, and I even heard someone say recently, um, if we would say that life is fair, that would mean that we would get caught every time we do something wrong. Imagine riding up and down this highway every time you hit 56 miles an hour and blue lights come on. Imagine every moment that you do something that, that, is, that is wrong in some way, you get caught right away. The next time you eat some bacon, you have a heart attack right then. All those kinds of things. Can you imagine how bad that would be, how difficult and how challenging life would be if we had to live like that. But God is just. God absolutely is just. And He cannot allow sin to go unanswered. So what does that mean for us? In the case of Haman, he would pay for his sins in this life and in the next. And so here's something. God has good news for us. Uh, the good news is that even though we are sinners... God made a way for us to be forgiven. Sin can never be ignored. That is, that is a biblical principle. Sin doesn't get put to the side. It, 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 it's all on the ledger. It all has to be dealt with. Okay, And so sin cannot be ignored. So God sent His Son to this earth to pay the debt of sin for everyone who believes in Him. So... If you think about it as, a, as like a business ledger, as a budget, there's all, there's all these things that have to be paid. And it is our sin in this case. And so that has to be balanced against whether there is justice and judgment provided or whether there is forgiveness only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God is not just forgiving these without any kind of payment. He is forgiving them because Jesus has paid the price. It is applied to anyone who believes in Him. So as we celebrate Christmas, we will remember that God loved the world, so He sent His Son. Think about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. We will celebrate Christmas. We will remember that. But we also must remember that God is just, so He sent His Son. God's justice... And his love together is what created the gospel. If God was not just, Jesus would have had to die. He could have just said, oh, you know, you, you live right from here on out and, I, and we'll just call us even. But God is just. And so we have to be perfectly sinless, perfectly blameless, which we cannot be. Or we have to have the, the debt of our sins paid by Jesus Christ. And so that is what Christmas or tells us, or what, what, what Christmas is, is not only the love of God sending Jesus Christ, but also the justice of God demanding that either Jesus pay that price or we pay that price. So the sins of each person must either be forgiven through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ or punished for all eternity according to the justice of God. 
Sin matters. It either has to be forgiven through Jesus Christ or it has to be punished. There is no middle ground. There is, there is no gray area. There is no escaping that. You know, the justice that Haman received, it was swift um, and severe. But God has been patient with us um, to, for us to listen and obey the gospel. So here's the thing. I think that this Christmas season, because as, as, as we look at this world today, would we say that sin outweighs righteousness? I think in a lot of areas, there's a lot more sin going on than there is righteousness going on. And so when we thank God and praise Him, let's praise Him for His patience. Because He has patiently endured the sinfulness of, of, of us and of our nation and of the world. He has been patient to wait for us to hear and respond to the gospel. Uh, we need to praise Him and thank Him for His forgiveness. Because that did not come free. It came at the price of the Son of God Himself. And we also need to praise Him for His justice. There will come a day when the, the offer of salvation is concluded. That day will come. Now, it is my prayer that everyone that we know and love will hear and receive the gospel. But we know that that may not be the case. We have the Christmas season. Hopefully we get to see family members. We get to see people that we haven't seen maybe in a short time or maybe in a long time. And when we're there, we can, we can talk about the weather. We can talk about how weird of a couple of years this has been. We can talk about, you know, all these kinds of things that we have. But we can also talk about Jesus. If you have family members that don't know Him as Lord and Savior, just remember. And maybe, maybe think about Haman. He had sinned. It wasn't forgiven. It had to be dealt with. The king would not forgive Haman. Our king will forgive us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's share that message. That's the gospel. It's, it's good news, and it's made better by understanding the bad news. The bad news is God doesn't forget sin. He only forgives it through Jesus. So if we proclaim that message, people can be saved. People can have a whole different kind of Christmas experience than what they would have had otherwise. And so that's my prayer, is that as we go out and as we, as we leave this place and we gather with family, that we would share the gospel with anyone that doesn't know it already. And you know what? As a Christian, if I had a distant relative that, that came to a Christmas party and they tried to win me to Jesus, I'd be so happy. I'd, I'd hug their neck. I'd tell them, thank you. I already know Jesus is my Savior, but thank you for sharing that with me. So don't be afraid. Talk about Jesus this Christmas season because that's what it's really about. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for this time to gather together for a few moments and to look into your word and to see that you are just. You do not ignore sin. Your justice demands that sin be paid. We know that the wages of sin, as Paul told us in Romans, is death. And so when we read the story of Haman and the, and the price that he had to pay, that is justice. But Lord, as we sit here this morning, we know that, that we have sinned also, but, but I pray for each and every person in this room, we know that we are not facing that punishment because of the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And Father, if we are saved indeed, I pray that we will be messengers that we will be the voices crying out, telling other people that Jesus saves. That Jesus has paid the price for our sins. Let us have a wonderful Christmas season. Let us celebrate Him truly. 
but also let us proclaim Him. Because when we look back at the early Christmas stories, that's what was going on. The angels were proclaiming, the shepherds were celebrating, the wise men were seeking. So many people were searching out for Jesus or celebrating that they had seen Him. Let us celebrate in that way, the biblical way of declaring Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.